VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a car. It's the two-door coupe that was there for your first drive. The hatchback that took you cross-country and back and the minivan that tackles the weekly carpool. For the cars you couldn't live without, trust Amica Auto Insurance. Amica. Empathy is our best policy. It's Friday, February 7th, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Chris Mooney. And I'm Indre Viscontis. Each week, we bring you a new in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You can find us online at climatedesk.org, and you can follow us on Twitter at Inquiring Show and on Facebook at slash Inquiring Minds Podcast. So this week, we have a lot of great content on the show. We have coverage of the scientific side of the Olympics in Sochi. We have Bill Nye's big evolution debate to talk about. And we have a great science communicator, Dr. Kiki Stanford, who's going to be coming on to discuss all of that with us. Plus, plus we have my interview with New Yorker psychology writer Maria Konnikova, who's the author of the book, How to Think Like Sherlock Holmes. And she is just sort of a pro at explaining to us how to make our brains work just a little bit better when life or the internet or distractions or multitasking are slowing them down or knocking them off course. And here's a clip from that interview. So multitasking, not getting enough sleep, these all have to do with a mindset of constant work and constant productivity and thinking that we always need to be on that you need to respond to your email within 10 seconds of getting it. Otherwise, people start worrying and you get a follow-up email. Hey, did you get my email? And it's this mindset that this is the way we need to operate. But it's really counterproductive. And what we don't realize that is that it's making us less creative. It's making us unhappy. And it's not using humans to the best of their capacity on both a mental and a physical Obviously, the two are very closely related, both mental and physical level. And of course, Indre, usually I'm no big fan of having a car horn in the background of my interview. But in this case, this was in New York, it was so incredibly symbolic of what she was talking about in terms of our general impatience uh, that while she was explaining that, we have somebody honking a horn. <laughs> no, absolutely. It was a, there was a certain je ne sais quoi about that extra character in the interview. Yes, totally. Um, je ne sais much, but yes. But before we get to the interview, uh, as you said, Chris, we have some other things to go over and discuss. And for that, we have brought in a special guest, Kirsten Sanford, who's also known as Dr. Kiki. She's the popular host of Dr. Kiki's Science Hour and This Week in Science. And she's a sought after communicator of science. Kiki, welcome aboard. We are glad to have you. And, you know, since you've had me on your show a number of times, I'm glad to be able to return the favor. It's really great to be here. Thank you so much. So what have you been thinking about in science lately? Oh my gosh, I think about everything in science, but uh, the biggest issues uh, lately are 
related to science denialism. So, uh, the, yeah, the big things I've been thinking about have to do with vaccinations, with climate science, with evolution, creationism, um, and really how to communicate these things in the best way. Well, you're on the right show. Right. <laughs> yeah, those are all things we like and to like to cover. Of course, we don't like the fact or that they hate. exist. Yeah. <laughs> right. So, and so in this show, we are going to talk both about climate and about evolution. And we're going to ask you to give us some feedback on both. So let's let's move on to the first part of that. And this is related to climate change. So as everybody knows, the Winter Olympics have just kicked off in Sochi, Russia. And there's been tons of media hoopla about all this. And when Russian President Vladimir Putin pitched Sochi to the game's organizers back in 2007, he promised there would be real snow. And that was sort of a bold claim for a town that's kind of better known as being a seaside summer resort. So sure enough, this week, Sochi had highs in the 50s and no new snowfall. The organizers are insisting that the games are ready to speed ahead because they have a fresh layer of of fake snow. So we'll see about that. But it's not just Sochi. Low snowfall has become a chronic problem for skiers and snowboarders worldwide, and that's turned many of them into vocal activists against climate change, sort of this whole industry of climate activists. President Obama even mentioned the problems facing snow sports in his major global warming speech last year. Mountain communities worry about what smaller snowpacks will mean for tourism. So does climate change mean the end of snow sports? Well, one of Climate Desk's great reporters, Tim McDonald, has been looking at this issue, and we have a report from him that we'd like to play, in which he goes to the ski community and talks to an expert there about just how much it's suffering due to global warming. The polar vortex that froze the East Coast the last few weeks was a sign of how global warming can sometimes produce exceptionally snowy weather. But as the ski season runs its course... Higher temperatures melt snow faster and can bring the fun to an early end. Porter Fox is a veteran skier and journalist for Powder Magazine who is keeping a gloved finger on the pulse of shifting slopes. He recently published a book that details how global warming is threatening the entire business model of the ski industry. It's called Deep, the story of skiing and the future of snow. Porter told me that climate change could soon send snow sports crashing downhill. There is going to be huge changes in the ski industry in the next 10 or 20 years. There is going to be a cataclysmic change within the next 50 to 70 years in um, Europe and uh, North America, around the world, really. In other words, skiers and snowboarders need to prepare for very different-looking slopes. We've lost a million square miles of uh, spring snowpack in the last 45 years. The northern Rockies, uh, the spring snowpack is down 15 to 30 percent. Specifically in the U.S., the rate of winter warming has tripled since 1970. Uh, It seems that winters are starting to warm faster than other seasons. Every single one of those factors is bad news for the Rockies, the Sierras, the Cascades. My favorite places to ski in. Snow sports support an entire industry, including resorts, local shops and restaurants, and equipment manufacturers. But the slopes are only open for business a few months each year, which means any lost days are a crippling blow. The way the industry feels it is if you're not fully open for Christmas, you are going to lose most of your profit from that year. And of course, that's the first. It's the earliest part of the season. And what's happening um, with, with climate change in the Rockies and the Alps is the shoulder seasons are edging in. 
So the winter starts later and it ends earlier, already by a couple weeks on each end. And every year uh, it's getting worse and worse. At stake is not just the industry's own bottom line, but a whole chunk of the national economy. It's, uh, it's hitting them pretty hard. In the last 10 years, um, ski resorts in the U.S. lost over a billion dollars um, due to low snow years. It adds an estimated $12.2 billion in economic value to the U.S. economy. Uh, two, over 200,000 jobs in the winter um, in the States, uh, $7 billion in salaries, and uh, that results in $1.4 billion in state and local taxes and $1.7 billion in federal taxes. So now we're not just looking at when is all the snow gone, we're looking at when do these businesses become um, not viable anymore because they can't open for Christmas. Half of the 103 ski resorts in the Northeast will close in the next 30 years. Meanwhile, in Sochi, that future may be here already. It's a bit of a disaster right now. They stored, uh, I believe, 16 million cubic feet of snow last season to use this season in case this happened. And they did that because they had to cancel several exhibition events last year in February because it was too warm and there was no snow. But it's, uh, it's, a, sign, it's a sign of things to come. So are we looking at the end of skiing as we know it? Fortunately, not quite yet. It's harder to see over the course of a winter when you're a skier talking about powder days. Powder days still come, you know, it still happens. But when you look at trends over a decade, over 50 years, that's what we're talking about here. The, the lines on the graph are very clear and, and they're all headed down. So Kiki, what do you make of this? I mean, we have the insurance industry, it's uppity about climate change. Now we have the ski industry, it seems to care. I mean, what do you what do you think? Can we get some other industries on our side as this uh, continues to roll forward and the problem gets worse and worse? Well, I think just about every industry is going to be worried about it at some level, especially those that deal with tourism and risk like the insurance industry. Um, I mean, the big issue here is that as climate changes, the places that used to have snow or sun are not going to have them in the same quantities that they used to. And it's going to really affect business. Yeah. And skiing definitely is a big business. I mean, in some ways, it's a fairly elitist sport because it's very expensive. Um, you know, this is coming from me, who's Canadian and skied all her life. And, you know, I know I know that there's a lot of industry behind it, a lot of money that goes into both the resorts and the gear and everything else. Um, so there's a lot of things that are on the line here. But it does seem quite sad that just our ability to play the sport is going to decline in the next few decades. Yeah, and we've got problems here in California going up into the Sierra Mountains where the resorts here are currently having to rely on fake snow because we have not had the winter storms that we normally do. Our snowpack before this last storm came through was probably like 12% of the the yearly average or somewhere around there. Um and so what we're looking at is the question of, as we go into drought conditions, can we continue to make the fake snow that will be needed to perpetuate the ski industry if we don't have the winter weather that we rely on? 
And it's kind of amazing to me, too, that this is the second Olympics in a row where snow is an issue. I mean, even in, yeah. you know, outside of Vancouver and Whistler last uh, last Olympics, there was a problem there, too. So, you know, is the Olympic Committee now going to be more judicious about where they hold the next Olympics? Is it going to have to be much further north? <laughs> or very far south. Antarctica. Right. Yeah, and I, I think I would, even to make it more grim, uh, there is a scientific aspect of this that wasn't in the piece that I think is equally threatening, if not more so, to the the ski industry, which is that, okay, warming overall, less snow, that's obvious. But we also have this, and we've talked about this on the show before, crazy jet stream behavior. And what it seems to be doing is it seems to be making weather get stuck in extreme patterns, but different patterns in different places, right? So the West has had all this heat and dryness in the United States in the last month, especially. But then the the East got all this snow. And then if you jump across to the UK, they got torrential downpours and flooding, right? And it stays that way. And so places where you're dependent on skiing, you can have one winter, tons of snow, then a winter where you completely get very little snow, then you might have another one, but you might not survive that non-snowy winter and you're not going to know what to expect. Exactly. And that's what we're looking at here in the West with the um, uh, El Nino Pacific Oscillation. So we've got uh, this weather pattern that is dependent upon changes in the, the currents in the Pacific Ocean. And right now we're in stuck in a drought, but we could end up with a change in the weather that will suddenly bring us massive amounts of water and snow, and that will really affect the way things go forward. And then it could go drought again. In any case, it's going to be an interesting Olympics, not just for the politics, which I thought was going to dominate, but obviously now for the effects of climate change as well. Yeah, and I think there's um, uh, one of the popular snowboarders has pulled out of one of the events because he actually said that the uh, that the the course is too dangerous hmm. at this point. Not enough snow. Wow. Well, we're going to be watching. This is the world we live in. Uh, let me let me take us to our other conversation for this week. So on Tuesday night, a lot, a lot, a lot of people tuned in for something that we just have not seen in any time in my memory, which was a big mega debate over creationism. And the debaters were Bill Nye, the science guy, and Ken Ham of Answers in Genesis. It was at the Creation Museum in Kentucky, the notorious Creation Museum where kids can ride on the back of a triceratops if they want to. Um, And uh, wow. We all tuned in to watch it. It was almost three hours long. Uh, so much to be said about this event, what it means and what happened. Um, I guess, Kiki, I'll ask for your reaction first. Well, uh, I didn't know whether to laugh or cry at many points. Um, the whole thing was a bit of a spectacle, and there definitely was the question going into it as to whether or not Bill Nye should even be talking to Ken Ham and making uh, the... in. People were making the case that by standing up and doing the debate, Bill Nye was letting credit, lending credibility to the idea that uh, creationism does have a place in the conversation about evolution. So that that was one of the attitudes just going into it. I think that um, off the bat, I don't think Bill Nye uh, was very strong coming out of the gate in the debate. I think he relied on um, on 
the perspective of an educator and a scientist, and there were a lot of facts and figures that had the audience glazing over uh, for much of his, uh, his dialogue, his monologue. And then when they actually got to the question answer and the back and forth and the real debate between Kim, Ken Ham and Bill Nye, I think Bill Nye actually came back fairly strongly. He started making some great points um, and relying on uh, more emotional arguments to be able to to get into uh, the debate space and into people's heads. Yeah. So, you know, Bill Nye was initially criticized quite heavily by a lot of scientists and a lot of skeptics, you know, but why he would go into this debate to begin with. And I think, yeah. you know, Phil Plate made a really great comment in his blog today where he talks about how if we're trying to combat science denialists, we really actually do need to address them. We can't just, you know, keep silent or, you know, come out of the conversation and, and not even engage with them. Yeah. And so I think in that in that sense, Bill Nye was a great person to do this particular debate. And, and I think he did a good job on it. Yeah, I, I could see it. I can see it different ways. I mean, this was, let's face it, this was an incredibly good advertisement for that creation museum. Yes. And sure. I mean, if you had been required to drink every time Ken Ham mentioned the creation museum, then maybe you'd be drunk enough to actually think about going so i think i, I mean, think there actually was a drinking game that someone put up somewhere oh, there were probably there were, there were probably plenty yeah right? <laughs> drink when they say radiocarbon dating um so you know there's that but uh, but i i also agree with the tenor of the things you guys are saying which is that i thought Nye did well um i thought ham looked dumb at moments, I mean, there, you know, this this whole this whole thing about, you know, he believe he believes that lions were once vegetarians. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, this stuff. I mean, once you get into the details, I'm not even going to look at their yeah. teeth. I don't care what the fossil <laughs> records say. They must have been vegetarians because everyone had to be vegetarians to live together on the ark. Yeah, and everybody saw that moment, you know, and it it doesn't leave you. Yeah, for me, you know, the content was really, I, I have to admit that I had to tune out after a while. But what's really interesting to me is the effect that the having the debate had on the Twitter sphere, yeah. you know, on the internet at large. And, uh, you know, one of my favorite reactions is uh, Matt Stopra's, the, the BuzzFeed blog post where he asked uh, 22 creationists to give messages to people who, quote unquote, believe in evolution, and they're really hilarious. Um, but the point is, is that people are now talking about it. And if it wasn't for this debate, we wouldn't have so many people engaging in the national conversation on what is truly, you know, an important issue. We should not be teaching creationism as science in schools. And I think what we really have to get to here is also the core of the debate that Bill Nye made a point of saying is that there is no real problem between religion and science. What's going on is there is a small subset of a religious group, uh, these evangelist Christians who are threatened by science because it threatens their worldview. And so we need to start thinking about why they are going about trying to push creationism into the classroom, because it's not it's not everybody who has a belief in God that is trying to that that thinks that this argument has any weight. I think that's a great argument. I was glad that Nye finally started to make the point. He he said many times, billions of religious people around the world accept science. And I was thinking to myself, 
billions? I don't know. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, there is anti-evolutionism yeah. in other religions than Christianity. I don't know the numbers. I thought that was a little bold, but it certainly is the case that you have many uh, religious scientists who accept evolution. I think that honestly should have been his number one argument. Yeah, and I think, uh, Indre, you, you mentioned Phil Plate's uh, blog post on, on Slate. Uh, he also made that comment. He, he was saying that the people who need to be trying to stand up and have more of this conversation are people who do have a religious belief, who have, you know, who are not the 8% of the United States atheists who are, you know, that people don't like, you know, that you can't, you know, that there's, that, that we're just because of your belief, it starts a controversy. Um, it has to come from a place of finding common ground and trying to start the conversation from there. I guess I just feel like this whole idea that religion and science are incompatible and that, that that's really a, a belief system that a lot of people hold. I still think that that's kind of a fringe view. I think that most people don't think that they're incompatible. And I think if you ask most people, they, you know, that, that argument in some ways gets a little tired because I just don't, you know, I, I agree that we shouldn't be teaching creationism as science in schools. That's, that's hands down, I think, the point of, of the debate. Um, but beyond that, yeah, I think most people are much more reasonable than we give them credit for. <laughs> I think you're well, right. I, I, I've been uh, defending this view that you guys are articulating about compatibilism or reconciliationism a bunch myself. And sometimes atheists have gotten a little annoyed with me if I, you know, some atheists. But honestly, they're not always in conflict. But boy, they they get a fair amount of conflict going. I mean, it is a it is a recurrent theme. So I, I, I my, the way I articulate it would be that the conflict is not necessary and there are many ways of getting around it, but the conflict happens enough. And you saw it last night. I mean, if there is ever a conflict between science and religion, it is in the heads of the young earth creationists, right? Yeah, but there's, such, mean, a, there. there's yeah. such a fringe group. And so oh, there's a lot of them in America. <laughs> there is a lot in America and they're also growing in numbers. And something like last night's debate is potentially going to increase their numbers, even though groups like the National Center for Science Education come out and say, Bill Nye won the debate. There are people on the other side who are saying Ken Ham won the debate because in their minds, they could not put together what Bill Nye was saying and believe any of it or agree with any of it, I guess I should say. I don't know. I say I say Bill Nye wins the middle and that's who wins the debate. <laughs> yeah. Okay, well, we don't know if there'll be one of these again anytime soon. So it was certainly amazing and fascinating to watch and produced tons of opinions, including amongst ourselves, which is, I guess, the point. So thanks uh, to both of you for really great thoughts on this. And Kiki, thank you for being here with us uh, to bounce all these ideas around. Thank you for having me on the show. It was a lot of fun to get to talk about this and to have someone else to bounce my opinions off of. Great. We will see you around town. Cool. So now with that, let's take a short break and we'll be back with my interview with Maria Konnikova. Maria Konnikova, welcome to Inquiring Minds. Happy to join you. I'm thrilled to have you and I've been greatly enjoying your stories in The New Yorker and elsewhere over the last year about how our brains work, how people really behave, uh, stories about things like why we're lazy in the summer, why we can't stick to our New Year's resolutions, and then my favorite, 
why left-handed people are supremely awesome and creative. <laughs> are you left-handed, <laughs> Yes, raising my hand. You can't see it, but I'm raising my hand. Uh, and so I guess I'd first ask, where do you find all these? Are they just lying in wait in the scientific literature, waiting for someone who knows how to find them? Yeah, I think um, it's a combination of, of things. Yes, part of it is just lying in wait and... I read the literature and sometimes something just grabs my mind, but often it's the other way around. I'm drinking a cup of coffee, for instance, and I wonder, hey, what is this doing to my thought process? Am I going to write a better piece while I'm drinking this cup of coffee or am I going to write a worse piece? So sometimes it's it, it goes from there. The summer laziness one, for instance, came because I was feeling especially lazy and it was very hot outside. And it made me wonder whether there was something more fundamental about it. So I came up with the idea. Then I looked at the literature. And oftentimes these questions just go nowhere. So I, you know, I, I say, does summer make us lazy? And the answer could have been absolutely not your, you know, maybe your experience says that, but it's really just your experience and there's no literature on it. In which case I'd move on to the next question. But more often than not, you find that, hey, people have actually studied this and there's real data on it. And I'm not the first person to think to ask this question. Well, I think reading all of these articles as I, I've done uh, just to prepare for the interview, I, I find a lot of persistent themes. And let me try them out. One of them seems to be that modern humans seem to be consistently sort of misaligned with the world that they now occupy. So for instance, you know, we're not sleeping enough because we don't rise and then repose according to the rhythms of the sun. We try to multitask because that's the world that we live in, but we, we stink at it. We work in open, distracting office spaces, which stress us. We turn to Facebook. We get depressed. It's like it's everything we live with. <laughs> we're not matched Yeah, to. I mean, Yeah. Um, I'm emphatically nodding my head in agreement. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think that that is a persistent theme in my writing because I really want to draw attention to it. And even when I'm not consciously thinking about it, I end up coming back to it because the way that, you know, the way that we've evolved, the way, the way our minds work, the way we work at our most optimal selves is really not the way that we're, we have to operate today. Um, the, you know, the sleep factor is absolutely huge. And it's, I mean, I feel like I'm, I'm fighting a losing battle, but I hope that if there are enough voices out there, someone will finally hear that, hey, these, this attempt at hyperproductivity is making us much less productive because it's very, all of these things are very short-sighted, right? So multitasking, not getting enough sleep, these all have to do with a mindset of constant work and constant productivity and thinking that we always need to be on, that you need to respond to your email within 10 seconds of getting it. Otherwise, people start worrying and you get a follow-up email. Hey, did you get my email? And it's this mindset that this is the way we need to operate, but it's really counterproductive. And what we don't realize that is that it's making us less creative. It's making us unhappy and it's not using humans to the best of their capacity on both a mental and a physical. Obviously the two are very closely related, both mental and physical level. Um, so I definitely, you know, it's a persistent theme in my work because I think it's one of the greatest challenges facing modern society. How do we understand that? How do we take a step back? How do we rewind a little bit and try to give people time, give people space, give people rest so that ultimately 
we will be more productive. There's this disconnect between what people believe and what is what is the reality. Well, let me let me take up the topic of sleep because I know I didn't get enough of it last night, and that happens uh, frequently. In my case, I, I do read your writings and the science, and so I, I'm aware it's bad for me. But here's the thing: how bad? Um, how much should I worry about it? Is it moderately bad? Is it very bad? How much do I bounce back from any damage that I do to myself? I mean, these are the these are the questions that a person has to ask, and and they don't know the answer just by reading about the latest study on sleep. Absolutely. I think that's exactly the right question to ask. And what we know is that if you, Chris, didn't get enough sleep last night, you can bounce back from that very easily and very quickly. That's not too bad. You're probably not at your best today. Maybe it's yeah. even going to catch up with you tomorrow. <laughs> you I catch up in this interview. Okay. No, you, you, I couldn't tell at all that you didn't get any sleep last night. Um, if you hadn't told me, you know, you gave up the jig, but, but it, it wasn't uh, at all evident. But say, you know, say you, you just have a few nights where you miss out by an hour or so. Not too bad. Now, if you're consistently going with even an hour less of sleep than you should be getting, then it starts getting very worrisome. And then we go from moderately bad to very bad because there's a big difference between acute sleep loss. So the type of sleep loss that you experience if you, you know, are staying up late to finish, um, finish a podcast, for instance, or finish an article and the type of chronic sleep loss that you experience if you're constantly undersleeping. And in the second case, it's really, really difficult to catch up. A weekend simply is not going to cut it because your sleep debt is too high. And what we're finding is that the effects are much more long lasting than we thought. So even if you go on vacation and you've really, really well rested, that doesn't mean that your brain has fully recovered if you've been going through a year of chronic sleep deprivation before then. And uh, the, science, the science is only now kind of looking at, well, just how bad is this? But they're speculating that it could mean you know, it could mean a lot of really nasty stuff for our cognition and our health um, moving forward. It might, for instance, make you more likely to get Alzheimer's a little bit sooner um, if you have already the genetic predisposition from Alzheimer's. That's a sobering thought. Mm. Yes, it is. And uh, well, so in other words, in order to reverse, let's say you have a bad habit, what you need to do is start having a good habit and then you have to stick to it over a long time. I mean, you can't, you obviously can't reverse it quickly. Yeah, that's absolutely right. So you can't just think that, well, I'm not ever going to get enough sleep, but on the weekends I'll sleep in and I'll be okay. It doesn't work that way. It has to be a much more lasting lifestyle change. And that's easier said than done because oftentimes, you know, your, your work schedule just doesn't allow for that. And especially if you're a shift worker, you know, if you're someone who has to work during the night, well, then what are you going to do? Quit your job? You know, these are, these are very real questions that society has to grapple with. And sometimes on an individual level, you know, we're up against too much and it's very hard for us to make the right decision, even if we know what the right decision is. So another major theme uh, of your writing is sort of what the internet does to us uh, as it totally messed us up. So one of your um, most widely read pieces is about uh, people on Facebook and how it makes them unhappy because they're passively scrolling and watching other people's wonderful lives. 
<laughs> I guess. I guess that's the reason. Um, yeah. So, I mean, it, what is is hell a series of endless open internet browser tabs, you know, one after another? <laughs> Yeah, uh, that's uh, that's a, a very uh, astute uh, characterization of hell. That's my personal hell, but um, I don't think that that it's a little bit more complicated because the internet is also doing lots of very wonderful things for us, but we're often using it wrong. So we now have these capabilities to access information quickly and to be able to do all of these things that before would take hours and hours, and that we might not even no existed. Um, but it's how we go about doing it. So are we, if we have 10 browser tabs open, are we constantly switching between them? Or are we saying, okay, I'm going to do one thing at a time. First, I'm going to do email for the next half an hour. Then I'm going to go on Twitter for the next half an hour. If we do that, then everything is all fine and dandy. Where the problem comes in is when we start to do it all simultaneously when we start to multitask and really very quickly switch our attention from an article to a tweet to a Facebook post. And we're just all over the place because that's very cognitively demanding. And that makes us less able to engage with what we're reading and with what we're doing. And it also just makes us exhausted and worse at the tasks that we do have to accomplish. So really, it's all in your habits. How do you personally use the internet? And is that use, is that use making the most of the resources? Or are you in a way letting the internet use you to, uh, to constantly have all of these updates happening in real time all the time? You also had a look at what makes things go viral. And you noted, and we are so guilty of this, by the way, easily packaged <laughs> lists. <laughs> they make Everyone's us feel, guilty of it. Yeah. They make us feel in control. And then things that arouse strong emotions, positive or negative. So I thought of one. Here's one I thought of. Six inspiring ways that a stranded snowy owl made Washingtonians better people. Mm, yes. But why does this stuff work? You know, I think it... I think it appeals to something very fundamental in us, which is, you know, ultimately we want to feel good and we want to feel hopeful and optimistic. I don't want a story about, you know, a snowy owl that was stoned to death and how, how terrible people are. I want the story about, you know, the snowy owl and how it makes us better people. That's going to. That's going to make me happier. Now, ultimately, if it, if the owl was stoned to death, that would probably do pretty well too. It was actually it hit by me... a bus, inadvertently, <laughs> I guess, but it's okay. Oh. And now it's recovering, and people rescued it. So this well, is kind there, of a real story. Uh, well, there you go. Um, but if it had just been that it was hit by a bus and it died, that would be really sad. If someone had actually stoned it to death, um, I probably would be angry enough that I would share it because arousal is very important. So am I, is this something that really gets me going, whether I'm starting to laugh or whether I'm starting to scream or whether I say, I can't believe that this idiot did this. How in the world could he say it? When I have those strong arousing emotions, that's when I become more likely to share it. And I didn't actually, um, 
talk about the study and the particular piece you're talking about, but um, the same researcher, um, Berger, who, who did all of this work um, with Why Things Go Viral, had a really cool study where he had people run on a treadmill. And he found that when you were even just physiologically aroused, you became much more likely to share content. So it, it goes to this very kind of basic physiology. Are we feeling, you know, is our body feeling physiologically aroused? And when we have just gotten back from a workout, we become more likely to share things because we think that the peace is arousing when really it's, you know, our heart rate is up because we've just been running. But that I think that that's a really interesting way of looking at it because it shows that, you know, the content that's going to do well is the content that elicits that sort of a reaction, whether it's positive or negative. And yes, positive does much better than negative always. Um, that goes back to the hope and optimism that uh, we talked about earlier. Okay, so let's try out an example. Let's say if we want to make this interview go viral, <laughs> mm-hmm. what will we title it? Um, so I have two, I've, I've thought of a couple. Here's one. This is your brain on all the bad things you do to it. Um, mm-hmm. And here's how to save your brain before the internet wrecks it or before your second life one. wrecks it. The second Definitely one. the second one because it has, you need, you need the positive spin. The first one is too negative. You're saying, oh my God, my brain is being wrecked. I don't want to read that. I have enough things to worry about. But if you're going to tell me that this is a way I can save my brain or better yet, you know, not even wreck it in the first place, then that's definitely, that's the way we want to go. That's great. I hope you use that. <laughs> awesome. You're doing the, my work no, for no, me. No, no, you should do it. The, the three reasons or the five reasons. Have. Five ways to, sa- <laughs> to save your brain before your life wrecks it. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> there you go. There you go. And uh, if you have a cat video instead of our conversation below that, that would be even better. Oh, well, we'll, we'll work that in also. So let's go on to uh, some multitasking. It's not just the internet, but it's any kind of multitasking, trying to do a lot of things uh, at once. And you did this widely read piece on open offices and people getting distracted. It made me think, I mean, how many things in our world are just designed in a way that's psychologically obtuse? Lots yeah, of that's a, you know, one of my, one of the underlying points that I hope to get through um, in my in all of these pieces is that it's not that you know the internet or the world at large has made us multitask. That's really our default state. That's what we want to do. That's what our brains naturally do. They wander. It's much harder for us to pay attention to one thing than it is to just wander from thing to thing. And that's what the modern world just does so well. It taps into this tendency. Um, and it really kind of, it really gets it. And it's not, as you correctly say, it's not just the internet. It's this, you know, how many job descriptions have you seen where, um, it says, you know, good at multitasking or we need someone who's a good multitasker or do you see yourself as a good multitasker? It's just this mindset that this is a very, very good thing. And you, you see it over and over. Um, and it's just, it's brain candy for us. The more things we have, the better. We're like, ooh, look, this is exciting. Why don't I do this? Or why don't I do that? And when we, when we focus, we feel like, oh, I, I need to pay attention to one thing at a time. And that's not, that doesn't come as easily to us. Well, let's turn towards the what you should do or what you can do better part of the story. And this is, of course, you know, your your best-selling book, How to Think Like Sherlock Holmes, is out in paperback. And you, I mean, that's what you actually 
sort of more prescribed. So how do you cure the the how do you counter the ravages of multitasking? Cure our boredom and and distraction. What what do you do? Yeah, well, one of the interesting things is that you know the second part of your question, cure our boredom, it kind of comes with it. Um, there's some really interesting work that shows that when you're focused on what you're doing, you become happier, even if what you're doing is incredibly boring in its own right. So even if you're sorting files, um, if your mind is wandering, you're going to be much less happy than if your mind is focused on the task, which is very interesting. And even if you're doing something very fun, and it will be less fun for you if you're not paying attention to it and sorting files that you're paying attention to might end up being more fun in comparison. So that's just to kind of take the second part of your question that we will get less bored when we learn to focus on one thing at a time. And the one thing, well, the two things that I really think we can do is first of all, try to make a habit of noticing how often we multitask and to try to do one thing at a time. It's very hard for me to do, for instance, so I block the internet when I'm writing. Um, I have a software program that actually turns it off for me so I can't go on Twitter even if I really, really, really want to. Um, and it's called freedom and it's very freeing. And that freedom. has, <laughs> yes. And that's helped me, that's helped me, um, quite a bit. The second thing is something that as I say in my book, Sherlock Holmes does all the time that we can learn to do all the time as well. That only takes, you know, 10 to 15 minutes a day, which is setting aside a time in the day to do nothing and to really just focus on yourself and your thoughts. Um, there's a lot of literature on mindfulness training and mindfulness as kind of divorced from its Buddhist roots and more of just a cognitive exercise in not in not doing anything actively. So all you really need to do, for instance, is, you know, sit in your chair in your office and close your eyes for 10 minutes and focus on your breath, just on the ins and outs of your breath. And that's it. You don't really have to do anything else. You can do it when you're walking. Just don't close your eyes in that case. You know, you can do it at any time of day. And we see that if you learn to do that, you start training your attention. It's like a muscle. It starts growing stronger bigger, you start being able to focus much more easily and for longer stretches of time. Um, so it's something that really has, you know, just like any exercise, you're exercising your brain and you're exercising your ability to concentrate and to pay attention. And all, um, even from just 10 minutes, we start seeing neural changes um, that really help people end up doing better. Um, that 10 minutes really pays off multifold throughout the day. So, is it, you know, I know that the brain is, is very plastic, but I mean, I guess that also changes to some extent as you get older. I mean, you have to, you have to, is this harder to do? No, it's something that you can really do at any age. Um, what we're finding now is that our brains remain remarkably plastic into old age. Even something like language learning, which people used to think, you know, if you don't do it while you're young, you're basically screwed for life. Um, we're seeing that older people can learn new languages and can have the same sorts of neural changes after an immersion program that we see in lifelong bilinguals, even if they had never before learned a language. To me, that's one of the most kind of inspiring pieces of information in the sense that language learning really is 
something that's so closely tied to youth and to being young. So in my mind, if you can learn Chinese at the age of 60 and do so successfully, then you can definitely master something like paying attention for 10 minutes a day. Okay, so one thing I guess is not totally clear about this is the role of Sherlock Holmes as the icon of this particular kind of thinking. I mean, to me, he is obviously a fictional character who excels at perceiving all kinds of things around him that other people are not perceiving. What's the what's the connection to that? I mean, to me, that sort of heightened attentiveness, I guess. Um, is that is that what you're talking about? Yeah, it is a heightened attentiveness. And his connection specifically to the mindfulness is that if you look through the stories, he's an incredibly inactive, active detective. He often just sits in his armchair and does a lot of nothing, has his eyes closed, you know, or is playing the violin, but often just does nothing at all. And he even has an expression, the three pipe problem, where he sits and smokes three pipes. And that's the kind of mind space that I'm talking about. So he he doesn't call this mindfulness uh, training. He doesn't call it mindfulness meditation. To him, it's just a way of being. He's not He's a very good contrast to the type of person who's always on the go. That's Watson. Watson always wants to know what Sherlock Holmes is going to do next. And he really finds it hard to sit still. He even says, you know, I, Holmes was reading a book. I just couldn't concentrate on it because I was thinking about too many other things. And Holmes, in contrast, is someone who really pauses. And before he goes to a crime scene, chances are he will have thought and sat and smoked his pipes for hours and sometimes days. So in my mind, that's the connection. And that type of mind space, those types of breaks in time where he's not active, that's what enables him to be hyper-focused, hyper-vigilant, hyper-attentive when he's on the crime scene. That's what enables him to notice all of these different details that other people wouldn't notice and to put them together in new ways. I don't think he'd be able to do that if he hadn't taken the time to really just clean his mind beforehand. I want to try to bring this back to another one of your articles that I found fascinating, which was about first-person shooter games, which are very controversial. But you actually have a have a take on them that was surprising, which is that they actually are creating I- incredibly attentive engagement. Yeah, I found that surprising as well. Um, I was really intrigued by this research um, that shows that it's a really an experience of flow, which is not something we normally we normally associate with first person shooters or with a violent video game. We normally think of flow as you know you're just incredibly immersed in you know reading a book, playing a violin, uh, going to the opera, or singing yourself. Just these you know more spiritual and artistic experiences. But really, at its core, it's are you really really engaged in what you're doing? Is it you know, is it a powerful story? Is it drawing you in to the exclusion of everything else? Is this something where if the phone rings, you're going to ignore it and you might not even hear that the phone has rung because it's not, it's not important for you. Um, you're really in the zone. And 
it was fascinating that these first-person shooters can create that type of experience. It kind of, in retrospect, after I've read the research, it makes sense um, because you are the one who's kind of acting. You're the one in control. You're really creating your own reality, which can be an incredibly powerful feeling. And not just a feeling of escape, but a feeling of real control. I think that that is a big part of it. Um, so yes, I was, I was very intrigued by this, but it does seem to answer a lot of the characteristics of what the types of experiences that create flow are. One thing that I can't help thinking as we discuss these ways to make your brain work better through, you know, sort of having more focus, taking the time just to be with yourself and relaxing, frankly, having discipline so that you don't let yourself multitask. I mean, it, it seems to me that you can try to make these changes and they'll be very hard for people. But then there's also probably people out there uh, for whom these things come more naturally and it's sort of unfair. <laughs> is that is that true? I mean, is there something about some people that, that they're not falling for all these traps as much as others? You know, I think it's more a question of nurture than nature. It's really some people just weren't were raised to have an increased awareness of that. Um, I don't think it's the case that we have different abilities. I think we can all be this way. It's just most of us haven't had the opportunity. We haven't had the practice. We haven't even realized that we're doing something wrong when we're, when we're acting in a certain way. So I think, I think it's less that some people are naturally better and more that some people were just naturally lucky to have been in an environment where certain values were stressed over other values um, from their childhood. Well, what, um, um, what values do you think those would be? I mean, is this, I'm just trying to think, um, is this? Yeah, well, for instance, you know, I can think, um, imagine, you know, two modern day households um, and in one, the children aren't allowed to, they don't have cell phones, they can't use any electronic devices, they watch TV as a family one night a week, um, and, you know, their parents read to them, they play games with them, they go outside, they take them on nature walks, they engage with them, and while they're doing this, they don't have their cell phones out. They're not taking calls, they're not checking their email, they're kind of really present and engaged with the kid. That sends a very different signal from a family where, you know, you're playing with your kid and you are saying, hold on, honey, let me check my cell phone. Um, or when you use the television or an iPad as a babysitter when you're doing something else and you don't, you know, you don't have time for that. So I think you're subtly giving two different sets of signals that, hey, it's important for us to, you know, be, a, be together, to do one thing at a time, to really pay attention to what we're doing. Or no, you know, we're playing, but we can also be doing this at the same time. And that's totally okay. So there are these, you know, subtle cues that we send in those day-to-day -day choices that we make with our kids. And kids are remarkably perceptive. They learn very, very quickly. So even if you don't think that you're, that they notice that you're being distracted and that you're looking at your computer, that you're checking your phone for that important email from work, they notice, they pay attention. And to them, that means that sends a certain signal. Okay. So it's it's about how you how you model this for for kids. I mean, is the ideal here somebody like I don't know Thoreau, somebody who actually goes and absents him or herself and really tries to turn it all off? Or um, 
No, I don't think I don't think that's necessarily the case. I don't think we have to go all throw like. I think it's just a question of balance and of understanding that you know, we don't live in a thorough society. We don't live in a world where all this stuff is going to just magically turn off for you. And so it really, it's, it's up to you to regulate yourself and to make these choices for yourself because nothing is going to change in the environment. I don't think that we can all afford to go on this, you know, retreat to Walden Pond. I think instead we can just learn to cultivate kind of small moments of quiet and realize that we're going to be able to get many more things done if we learn to take a break. You can start with small things like take an, when you have your lunch break, actually take that lunch break, go outside, get lunch, meet a friend, don't, don't eat your lunch at your desk. You know, that kind of small change can, can go a long way. Well, I think actually that's a good note to end on. And I love how you make this all seem doable for those of us who find it to be kind of a hurdle. So thank you so much um, for being with us today on Inquiring Minds. Of course. I'm happy to join you. Well, I have to say, I've always loved her writing. And now hearing her interview, it almost it just makes me want to have a beer with her. She seems like a really cool person. Yes, but what would that do to your brain? Well, I don't know. And I have to say <laughs> that, you know, as I was listening to the interview, I was also, I might might have been, now, you know, nursing my son. I'm not, you know, admitting this necessarily. And I might have been checking Twitter. Um, but of course, what may be really sad is when she talks about sleep deprivation and how bad it is when it lasts for, say, months or years, which is essentially my fate. <laughs> And uh, I'm going to confess, as I heard that, I was like, oh, my God. And my uh, habit over the last, I don't know how long, <laughs> you know, I'm a more. I, so I, I, wor I worry, you know, and I think a lot of people um, have to worry if they've developed habits of not sleeping a lot. And, you know, I think it just goes to show how important it is that we really start to create a culture in our industries, whatever they might be, that kind of allows people to have these rest periods, even if they are faced with things like, you know, being new parents or doing shift work. You know, I think I think we so underestimate the importance of sleep. And time and time again, we hear how important it is. Yeah, I remember in college at the, you know, lunch table, one student saying, you know, going on this rant about how all of our classes are structured such that nobody can ever get any sleep. It's so early in the morning. There's so, so much work. And we, we shrugged it off. We're just, we're young, energized. We're like, we could plow through this. Uh, and that is exactly what she was talking about. And so I shrugged that off. You know, there's some fields where it's almost you know, like a badge of courage to go through sleep deprivation, like becoming an intern in medicine, for example. Irony. Yeah, of course, because you want your surgeon to be well-rested and, you know, fully functioning brain-wise. Well, I think that at least having the interview lets us all, just gives us a moment to look at how we're living and stop and say, am I going to change all this? And, and what is important is to not just let that moment pass like so many moments do and then not do anything. Of course, one of our articles is, why, is about why we don't 
uh, stick to our resolutions, right? So, so you you have to you have to get beyond the, the initial light bulb. Oh, I'm gonna I'm gonna actually take stock of where I am, and you have to actually stick with it. And you know, the other thing that I really liked about what she mentioned is how nefarious our little habits of you know I'm just gonna it's not a big deal. I'm just gonna check Twitter while I'm making dinner or or what have you. But that these little tiny decisions that we make can have major consequences in terms of our cognition and how we train our children to pay attention, etc. You know, it really makes you think about all the little things that you do every day that affect the big things in your life. Yeah. So close those tabs on your browser. Yes. And don't do anything other than listen to this podcast when you're listening to this podcast. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Right. So that's it, uh, I think, for another episode. And I want to thank you, as always, for joining us for this installment of Inquiring Minds. To find us online, visit climatedesk.org. You can also find us on Twitter at Inquiring Show and on Facebook at Slash Inquiring Minds Podcast. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac in cooperation with Climate Desk, a journalistic partnership that includes The Atlantic, the Center for Investigative Reporting, The Guardian, Grist, Mother Jones, Slate, Wired, and The Huffington Post. Our music is provided by award-winning producer Rian Sheehan. And we're your hosts. I'm Chris Mooney. And I'm Indre Viscontis. Every day, our world gets a little more connected, but a little further apart. But then, there are moments that remind us to be more human. Thank you for calling Amica Insurance. Hey, uh, I was just in an accident. Don't worry, we'll get you taken care of. At Amica, we understand that looking out for each other isn't new or groundbreaking. It's human. Amica. Empathy is our best policy.